And so because of that story, that experience, I have to now, because a handful of trees listened to me one night in the wilderness, I have to call myself a storyteller. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Gray, and welcome back to episode 61 of A Congruent Life. A Congruent Life is a podcast that's all about sharing stories of authenticity and reinvention, and in particular, people who live their lives with authenticity and congruence. Today, I'm glad to share Belden Lane with the A Congruent Life community. Belden is one of the wisest men that I know. He's been a significant mentor and teacher to me over the last few years. And if you think about the male archetypes of warrior, lover, magician, and king, to me, he truly exemplifies that king energy. Here's our conversation. I'm talking today to Belden Lane, who is a retired professor of theology and also a wisdom elder doing a lot of amazing work and writing about spirituality and nature. Belden, welcome to A Congruent Life. Uh, happy to be here, Andy. I'm so glad that we were finally able to connect. I don't remember if you remember this or not, but actually you were one of the big inspirations for this A Congruent Life project a couple of years ago when we got together in New Mexico. I wouldn't credit myself with that kind of influence, but I'm delighted with what you've uh, what you've done here with this. Uh, let's just start, Belden. Can you just kind of introduce yourself at a high level to our audience and tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Well, I, I was introduced a few years ago as a Presbyterian minister teaching at a Roman Catholic university, telling Jewish stories at the Vedanta Society. So I, I am a storyteller that delights in uh, the, the great teaching stories from all the faith traditions. Uh, I am also a lover of nature, wilderness in particular. I've been a backpacker for the last 30 years or more of my life. Most of my uh, spiritual retreats have been solo backpacking trips out into the uh, Ozarks here in Missouri or the Four Corners region of the Southwest. Uh, aside from being a, a professor of theology at a Jesuit university, I, I guess those two roles of, of storyteller and a, a writer about uh, nature and spirituality have, uh, have been the defining things about me. The combination of those two things, I think, is why I really wanted to invite you to the show. First of all, the intertwining of nature and spirituality and the amazing writing and work in that regard, as well as your love of story and the, the fact that you do see yourself as a storyteller. So I'd like to talk some more about, about both of those things. Can you tell us a little bit about how your love of nature got started? Well, you know, I, I grew up outside Orlando, Florida, uh, out near swamps and lakes, and uh, just as a kid, loved tromping through wild places, uh, roaming uh, all over, and I, I've always delighted in nature. But uh, kind of following the pattern that, that uh, Carl Jung suggests, it was 
around turning the age 40 that I found a deeper need for uh, wilderness, for uh, nature, uh, exploring more of the inner life, the inner wilderness that is echoed uh, again and again for me in an exterior outer wilderness uh, in the natural world. You mentioned that it happened for you at age 40. A pretty consistent theme on the show is one of reinvention and and rediscovery. Many times people in the middle portion of their life, maybe around that 40-year-old age that you're you're mentioning, people have sort of a a questioning, a, a feeling like things are not going maybe the way that I thought they were and, and sort of consciously reinvent themselves in their lives. Do you think that that was some of what was going on for you when you learned to trust nature more or at least be more open to some of the lessons it had to teach you? Yeah, absolutely. By that time, I had uh, paid my dues in the academy. I had, uh, gee, I'm trying to remember now, I, I hadn't quite made full professor, but I had certainly made tenure and uh, felt uh, that I knew somewhat what I was doing in uh, teaching on the college level, but also realizing uh, increasingly the uh, limits of that that I needed something less controlled, less analytical, less rational uh, and boxed, and something that would take me uh, out to the edge. And I found it in my teaching and in my writing, it's continually, and in my personal growth, it's continually a matter of being taken to the edge, and uh, wilderness experience uh, is, is a perfect uh, example of that. And uh, so, yeah, it it has been a matter uh, of continual reinvention and uh, uh, discovery of a deeper mystery uh, beyond what uh, being a, a university professor could provide. And how did you get to a place where you could trust that? You know, I think it's really easy for us, particularly for you coming from a very academic, heady kind of place, how did you learn to trust that experience of getting out of your head and experiencing something in a very visceral sort of way? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, it's a, a continuing process. I Even now in retirement, I, uh, one year, a little over a year into retirement now, I, I'm still calling myself a recovering scholar. Uh, getting over my addiction to footnotes, my addiction to uh, trying to impress people with what I write and say, and uh, realizing the need along the way in terms of the effectiveness of my teaching and in, in, in finding an energy that could support my writing and the kind of, of work I wanted to do. Uh, it, it was important to, in, in many ways, say no to the uh, academy, to reach beyond the limits of what wanted to define me and what defines authentic scholarly work uh, in that realm, and uh, finding a, a uh, reinventing uh, process that could set me free and, and give me the life and vitality that I wanted to include in my teaching and my writing. You've been talking some about the, the lessons of nature. What would you say that in your own life, what has nature taught you? It teaches me my limits. Uh, 
It reminds me of how small I am and yet also of how connected I am to everything else. I, I've, I've just been reading again John Muir's uh, Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, uh, uh, a, a book that he wrote in his late 20s, uh, a, a wonderful uh, process of his really entering into nature in depth for the first time and uh, finding that he was drawn to its wild beauty but also to its uh, uncontrolledness, the, the threat of uh, nature in the raw. Uh, there's a, 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 what I often describe as an indifference of uh, maybe especially desert terrain that I, I love in particular. The, the desert doesn't care about you. And there's a freedom in that, a, an invitation to let go of the false self, of let go, let go of the ego, all those things that you're telling yourself about yourself that are so important uh, in that reputation you want to fabricate with others. And the, the wilderness has, wants no part of that. It doesn't give a shit about uh, who you are, what letters are before your name or behind your name that might give you uh, some degree of importance. So uh, all those things, the beauty, the indifference that's healing, the interconnectedness that I'm a part of everything uh, that is intertwined in a web of nature that is amazing on uh, from the microscopic to the uh, astrophysical level, uh, that all astounds me. Not to bring it back to academic pursuits, but uh, your writing is a very important part of your work. And you have uh, three books now, all of which are very focused on nature-based themes. The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, which I love that title, Ravaged by Beauty, and Backpacking with the Saints. Could you tell us a bit about the process, perhaps, of trying to take these, these experiences that you have encountering nature and wrapping that up into your spirituality and somehow translating that into written works. Yeah, that's been a, a challenge. Uh, these, these three books that you mentioned grow out of an earlier one called Landscapes of the Sacred. And that was my first effort to uh, ask about the, the nature of sacred place. Uh, what is it that draws us to place, that's transforming about it? Uh, the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasat said, tell me the landscape in which you live and I'll tell you who you are. And I think he also could have said, tell me the landscape to which you are drawn, and I'll tell you who you are becoming. There's a powerful sense in which place is formative. It, 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 it uh, gives us an identity, uh, and, and especially the places to which we're drawn. So what, what I've done in all of these four books is to, uh, from a, a scholarly angle, to do two different kinds of, include two different kinds of writing. Uh, there are major uh, chapters that deal with the uh, tradition of spirituality, largely the Christian tradition, but I bring in Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, and others uh, as relevant. Uh, talking about the, the tradition of, of uh, spiritual writers dealing with nature, etc. Uh, there's somewhat academic chapters, but in between those, I've always added uh, much more personal essays that talk about my individual experience of wilderness, of place, whether it's desert, mountain, uh, 
river terrain down in the Ozarks or, or, or whatever. And, and that juxtaposition of the, uh, the tradition, taking it seriously and drawing from it, and my own personal experience, those are the things that, that those two things I find incredibly important in, in giving an authenticity to what I write so that it's not just my own uh, uh, private experience that I'm upholding as some model, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to integrate that with the larger tradition and asking how, how do we live uh, the in the Christian sense, for example, the, the faith that we uh, try, we've inherited from the past and, tr and try to uh, uh, make vital and new today. I love the storytelling aspect, and that's been a, a key part of the work that you do and the, and the style with which you teach and relate to others. I wonder, is there a story that you might like to share about your experience in the wilderness that would be particularly relevant here? Well, storytelling is, is I, I find, all through the years of my teaching and, and just in sharing with uh, friends and, and everyone that uh, it, it, it's stories out of our personal experience, uh, stories uh, out of the natural world, our encounter with it, that uh, really bring to life uh, the, the deepest personal experience. So uh, there's a story maybe I'd call my calling story. Uh, storytellers, I, I've been fascinated uh, at times to ask professional storytellers. I try to listen to them as often as I can. I have a number of friends that are really profoundly good storytellers. And, and the, most of them can tell you of a time when they felt called to be a, a teller. Uh, I always resisted that for years. I, I called myself a story lover, a story collector, but I, I felt that, uh, that there was something special. You had to have some kind of divine call or whatever uh, to be able to call yourself, to dare to call yourself a storyteller. But uh, a particular experience some years ago down in the Ozarks, uh, a few hours from home here, uh, made a, all the difference in the world. Uh, so about 20 years ago, my mother was dying of cancer with Alzheimer's disease at the time. Uh, it was three weeks from her death as it worked out. Uh, I needed to get away uh, on a Friday night to kind of catch up with myself. I went down to a place that I love. Uh, there's a narrow gorge uh, with a creek flowing through it. Uh, this was Late March, there had been a week earlier, 12 inches of snow that had fallen down there, followed by a thaw and then heavy rains. And so a flash flood of water, maybe 10, 12 feet deep, had flow, flowed through that narrow gorge uh, a week earlier. And when I walked in that Friday afternoon late, I saw uh, debris and branches uh, caught up in, in the trees uh, uh, 10 feet high or, or more, and I, I realized had I been there a week earlier, it had been a place of death. Uh, walked on down the creek, found a place to camp, uh, set up my uh, bedroll, uh, built a small fire. I don't usually build a fire out in the woods, but I, I felt need for comfort of that. And ate my supper as the sun was setting. And as I sat there by the fire, I noticed a little tree across the street, or across the fire from me, uh, about two feet high, a small pine tree. I hadn't seen it before. And I said, hello. I wasn't accustomed to telling or to uh, uh, talking to trees at the time. I've learned a lot better since then. 
And uh, sitting there with the tree, I had a sense as if a little kid were sitting by the fire with you. Uh, why don't you tell a story? And I'd never told a story to a tree before, but I thought of a Lakota Sioux tale that I dearly love, a story about death and transformation. And uh, so I, I started to tell the story to the tree. I, you know, as a teller, you've got to adjust your tale to your listeners. And so there were certain things I had to explain to the tree that it wouldn't understand. Otherwise, it was kind of a challenge, but I had a sense that both of us got into it and were enjoying it. Uh, it's getting darker by then. I, I took a few more twigs, uh, little branches put on the fire, and as the light uh, flared up, I saw three or four other little pine trees uh, that I could have sworn had not been there earlier when I set up camp. And I, I, I went on to tell uh, the story to all of them as uh, they were gathered there. And I swear to you, never before or since then have I felt more listened to as I was by that handful of pine trees in a uh, Missouri wilderness. And as I finished the story, I, I, I asked myself, what was it that, that explained the intensity with which I imagined them listening? And I realized that, for one thing, they'd never heard a story before. This is real wilderness area. There aren't even trails. And the few people that go in there are hunters usually, and they're not accustomed to telling stories to trees. So this was a novelty to them. I realized also that they knew what I was talking about in telling a story about death and transformation. Just a week earlier, 10, 12 feet of water had been rushing over them. It was amazing that they hadn't been ripped up, uprooted by that. And they were growing out of the rotted remains of dead trees, grandmothers and grandfathers uh, before them. They knew about death and transformation. But I felt there was something still more about the intensity and fascination with which they listened to the story. And then I realized they were watching the fire along with me, as I told. And I know these trees had never seen flames before. There, there was no evidence that there had been a forest fire in that part of the wilderness. There was no sign of a uh, campfire having been built there before. And the hair on the back of my neck suddenly stood up as I realized these trees were listening to a story about death and transformation as they watched wood burn, as they saw the stuff of their own being being transformed into beauty and light and uh, flames of orange, red and yellow uh, reaching up into the sky and, and uh, being left as a light gray ash uh, swept away by the wind. And as I uh, listened to their listening to the story, as I realized uh, the intensity with which the investment with which they listened, uh, their vulnerability carried me more deeply into my own, to my mother's soon death, to my own death and the great mystery of the hoop, uh, the giving and taking of life that is all a part of the mystery of wilderness. And so because of that story, that experience, I have to now, because a handful of trees listened to me one night in the wilderness, I have to call myself a storyteller. Uh, I can't deny it, as humbling as it is to confess. <laughs> That's a beautiful story, and in particular, that owning of the word. It can be so hard to actually accept these things about ourselves sometimes, 
but to actually accept that mantle of I am a storyteller. You know, the the names that were given are profoundly important. And we we receive uh, various names in our lives. And it is one of the most difficult things I find to be able to claim, honor the names that have been given to me and, and to grow into what's expected of me because of them. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other names like that that you've had similar experiences with? Hmm. Well, uh, there's a longer story I don't have time to tell you here, but uh, an occasion in in the Illumin work uh, that grows out of Richard Rohr's work with men. Uh, a number of years ago, I was out at Aravipa Canyon Ranch in southeast Arizona, and Richard had sent us out for an overnight uh, solo into the desert. And... Uh, that night, with intense wind coming down the uh, uh, narrow canyon where I had, uh, where I was uh, staying for the night alone, uh, there there was a a powerful sense of my being named and a a, a name that came to me that I couldn't deny that that uh, still I, I'm hesitant to talk about and yet that I have to grow into and it was speaks with the wind. I know that sounds kind of stupid, like uh, as if I were dances with wolves or something, uh, daring to uh, assume an, an Apache name for myself. This is uh, ancient Apache sacred land there at Arabipa Canyon. But uh, that name that came to me that night, uh, there in the wind in the canyon, speaks with the wind. I am one who is invited to speak with the wind, to speak with a freedom, with a vulnerability, with an openness uh, that I don't know, that scares me in ways. I don't know where all that will take me. But it is one of the names that I have to live into in these uh, closing years of my life. Both of those stories and this sense of, of ownership and, and taking on these these names that were given speak to the overall theme of a congruent life, which is about authenticity. And you yourself have used that word in the course of our conversation here a few times. And I, I wonder, what does it mean to you to live authentically or congruently? Well, we in the men's work, we talk about the distinction between the true and false self the false self is uh, that need to maintain a front, a uh, mask, a, uh, a persona that uh, looks good to other people, that is impressive. Uh, impression management is huge for the false self. And uh, what, what we learn in, in the work with men is that uh, an authentic life is uh, an, an ability to... Uh, to not have to depend on the false self, to not have to project that uh, image uh, that we always have to keep polishing, but to be authentic, vulnerable, true to our deepest selves, which uh, from a Christian viewpoint is mine, which is mine, is, is of, of the, the Christ nature that dwells in me, or the, the Buddha nature, as a Buddhist would say, or the, the Tao within me, as a Taoist would uh put it, that that deepest core of who I am, that I'm invited to be, uh, that is that expresses most 
fully who I am and also what connects me at the same time most deeply with the universe, with the divine. Uh, that's uh, the, uh, the quest for authenticity that uh, in the men's work we're always looking for, always trying to realize in our experience. And what advice would you give to those that are seeking that, that find themselves in a place of yearning for that authenticity? Well, I think you got to get sick and tired enough of uh, polishing that uh, false self, the mask, uh, to realize that it's not working for you anymore, and it never really worked for you very well. You can impress a few people, but you felt very hollow in the process. And so uh, you, you, you've got to realize what doesn't work for you and what is time to give up, what is time to let go of. And then when you do that, you recognize the need to take on disciplines that will allow you to be most fully who you are. And that seems kind of contradictory to us. We, we think that being who you are uh, is, is just a matter of, of uh, letting it come naturally without any uh, effort, whatever. The, the irony here is that it takes a discipline to uh, express and live your true self. And so, for example, for me, that is a regular practice of contemplative prayer, of, of uh, contemplative sit. That uh, in silence for 20 minutes, at least each day, where I center and uh, connect, reconnect with myself. It involves... Uh, a at least bi-monthly uh, trek out into wilderness uh, backpacking. It uh, means a regular connection with a spiritual director, with with friends, with a uh, couple of men's groups that I'm a part of. It means a deep connectedness with my wife and children. All of these are parts of the the discipline. They're the things I enjoy and delight in most. But I. I ironically have to discipline myself to do what I want to be and to do most fully. Isn't it interesting that 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 we most yearn for has to be something of discipline, how easy it is to let that go? Yeah, it really is strange, but it's true. Absolutely. We know it. So what's next for you, Belden? Now that you've retired from at least the formal aspects of teaching, what's going on in your world that you're excited about? Well, I'm, I'm doing three things now. I, uh, I'm not doing any formal teaching, but I, I do retreat work. I help as a weaver to uh, work with men's rites of passage. Uh, I delight in the work with men. Uh, it's a, really the, the greatest, most important work I've done all my life. Uh, I also am involved in spiritual direction. I'm walking with six men right now uh, along uh, their spiritual path. Uh, I love that work. It is always amazing, too. And then I'm still writing. I'm working on a new book, uh, what is something like a uh, sequel to the most recent book, Backpacking with the Saints. Uh, I'm kind of tentatively titling it The Secret Language of Nature, Wilderness Backpacking in the Contemplative Life. And it looks at particular teachers in the natural world, uh, fire, wind, deserts, mountains, 
wolves, birds, uh, wind, etc., and asks how we can learn their languages, how we can listen by the practice of a contemplative ecology uh, and be drawn more deeply into the fullness of, of our lives and a connectedness with the natural world. So, yeah, the, this whole connection of nature and spirituality continues to draw me, fascinate me. And that's what I'm still doing. Sounds like a very busy and full life. It is just as busy as when I was uh, teaching, but uh, I'm I'm doing what I want to do and what I love. Is there a final thought that you'd like to leave us with about authenticity, Belden? Hmm. I I just came back from uh, a Solarize meeting and men's conference uh, near Albuquerque. And one of the things that amazed me, uh, whenever I'm among these men, I, I realize they're, they're what I want to be when I grow up. I, I see men there who live a life that is utterly uh, real and authentic. And the uh, uh, amazing thing is, that how, is how natural it is, how unforced it is. How these are guys that don't put up any uh, uh, front. They don't try to be anything what the, other than what they are. They are utterly vulnerable. And vulnerability is a deep uh, uh, expression, I think, a deep sign of, of, of an authentic life. Uh, being open to others. Being open to what life gives or doesn't give to you. And saying yes, uh, who was it, Doug Hammarskjöld, who uh, said, for all that has been, thanks, for all that will be, yes. That's the authentic life. Uh, Belden Lane, thanks so much for your leadership and wisdom. I, I delight in listening to you and, and speaking with you, and particularly grateful to have you here on A Congruent Life. Thank you, Andy. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Belden Lane. The show notes for this episode are at acongruentlife.net slash 61 or acongruentlife.net slash lane, which is L-A-N-E. Thanks to those of you who have been leaving reviews for the show. That's enormously helpful for sharing A Congruent Life with others. If you would, please take a quick moment to leave a review for the show at acongruentlife.net slash iTunes or acongruentlife.net slash Stitcher. Thanks so much. A Congruent Life is supported by audible.com. If you're a fan of great audio content, you'll love Audible. They provide excellent productions of audiobooks and spoken word content. I myself have been listening to Audible for many years, including in the car with the kids lately. It's been awesome. Audible is offering Aiken Grunt Life listeners a free audiobook download, which you can access at aclbook.com. Thanks again for listening to and supporting Aiken Grunt Life. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Aiken Grunt Life. For more, please visit us on the web at aikengruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at a congruent See you next time.